If you have a Bible, you can follow along. And if you don't, uh, you can find today's passage in your order of worship. And I say to you, from John, or from the Revelation, uh, chapter 1, verses 4 through 8, hear the word of God. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, Priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, and who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Let us pray. Father, I pray now that you would simply come and reveal uh, the person and work of Jesus to us. This book, which is often uh, clouded in mystery, uh, please uh, pull back the curtain that we might see uh, what it's all about. I pray for those who are here uh, who don't necessarily understand the gospel, who don't necessarily trust Jesus. I pray that you would open their eyes of the deaf, or eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I pray for myself that you would be in my head and in my thinking, in my heart, and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen and amen. Well, I told you last week that I was spending, um, well, I was going to do one, one Sunday with regard to an introduction to the book of Revelation. And then when I got into it, I thought, well, shoot. I, and so I cut it in half. And so today is the second half of the introduction to the book of Revelation. And, and a lot of people have, have given me positive, very positive feedback about doing the introduction this way. And one of the reasons I'm doing it is, is basically because we need a good foundation before we actually enter in, because it can be sometimes confusing to some folks. In other words, what I'm trying to do is, if, when I was a kid, we used to get binoculars, and you know, you'd look through the binoculars, and every now and then it was fun to turn them the other way around. And you know, you'd walk around on the street, and everything looked really far away, and everything looked a little bit distorted, but it was sort of fun. Well, if you start... Your, your study of the book of Revelation from the back end of it, things actually look further away, and I think things are harder to read than if you start at the front. It's like looking through binoculars at the wrong end. So we're just starting with the beginning. And if you remember last week I told you that a lot of what I'm telling you is simply basic uh, Bible study technique. So as we jump in to, to today's teaching, uh, I'm going to give you a few slides that are just a reminder of what we looked at last week. And as promised, I told you I was going to tell you the, the, the major views on the way people approach Revelation, and I was going to tell you which one we would be using. Um, so complete transparency in this administration. So um, that was a joke. All right, remember last week the first presupposition I gave you was from, that you need to keep in mind when you study the book of Revelation, but really when you study any book of the Bible is what I'm calling Deuteronomy 29, 29 principle. And that simply says that the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. In other words, the, the point there is that some things apparently are just secret. And Moses read the law to Israel, and he said the things that God has given you, they're yours to obey. But the secret things belong to him. And the point is, is there are going to be several times along the way, I imagine, as we study the book of Revelation, 
where the only satisfactory answer is going to be, I don't know. And, and if you're okay with that, you're going to be a lot happier, I guess, is what I'm getting at. So that's the first presupposition. Oh, I didn't put it up there. The second one is this which is the Burger King principle. And if you remember the Burger King principle, it comes from my, my teacher, Richard Pratt, and I forget why he called it the Burger King principle, but it, it's easy to remember nonetheless. And basically it says that you can't say everything anytime you try to say anything, otherwise you end up saying nothing at all. Close to that. You can't say everything anytime you try to say something, otherwise you end up saying nothing at all. And my point there was just this, is that there are going to come times as we are looking at the book of Revelation when you're going to say, well, there's a completely different perspective that he could be taking there. And if I tried to cover every perspective on the book of Revelation, I would end up really not saying anything. And so at the end of the day, I'm just going to teach you what I think it says, and you'll have to, you'll have to ask me whether or not I knew there was another perspective or not. Or, yeah, I mean, we'll just have to talk about it. But if you expect that your particular position is going to be represented as we teach the book of Revelation, you're probably going to be disappointed. And that goes for probably almost most of us in here, I imagine. You'll see what I mean later on in the, the teaching. So that was the two presuppositions. And then we talked about what kind of book is the book of Revelation. And I was talking about literary genre and that there, there are poetic parts of the Bible and prosaic parts of the Bible and historical parts of the Bible and there are Gospels. And what kind of book is Revelation? What kind of literature is it? And if you remember, we said it was a hybrid. In other words, it's a hybrid of at least three different types of literature that we know. And we found that all by the first three verses in the book of Revelation. Right? The first thing, the kind of uh, literature was, it was an apocalypse. And remember what apocalypse does? An apocalypse, by definition, at least in Greek, unveils something. It, it shows us something that we're not seeing as clearly as we ought. So it's an apocalypse, but it's also a prophecy. Remember, John says, blessed is everyone who he reads aloud this prophecy and hears this prophecy. And a prophecy, typically speaking, in the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, is given not just to predict something so that you can know the future, but a prophecy is given to motivate you. It's, it's, it's usually given to motivate you towards some kind of faith and repentance, to believe the promises of God or something like that. And so John says this, this revelation is to reveal something because it's an apocalypse, but it's also to move you and motivate you, on the other hand, because it's prophecy. And finally, it's an epistle, or another word for that is letter. And letters in the New Testament, typically speaking, almost all the time are given in order to explain the person and work of Jesus to us, but not just to explain it to us, but to actually help us to apply it to our lives. And one of the errors you make when people study the book of Revelation is they forget that it is a letter, the whole thing. And we know that the whole thing is a letter because it opens up with what I read to you this morning. You know, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. And it ends with grace be to you all. So John expected the seven churches to read the whole thing as if it were a letter, which means among other things that it's going to do is the whole thing as a letter is going to apply the person and work of Jesus to our lives. It's going to motivate us to change and it's going to try and show us something. And so the next thing we looked at by way of last week's lesson was John's purpose. And basically his purpose was just to remind the church that Jesus, for, first of all, has won. That Jesus, when you, when you think about victory over sin and death and evil, Jesus won already. At the cross, it was done. So if you're a Christian, there is something that, that we rely on that is completely and utterly history, past history. 
And that history has to do with Jesus on the cross and the fact that at the cross he won the definitive victory over sin and death. But there's something more to that because not only is Revelation going to show us that Jesus has won, but he's going to show us that he also will win. Right, because some, if you're like me, a lot of times you, get, you become Eeyore, right? I spend most of my life in sort of Eeyore mode, like oh, everything's wrong, everything's going bad. Well, for some of us, we need to hear, Tommy, Jesus is going to win. He is going to ultimately have the victory. The book of Genesis, Revelation teaches us that Jesus will win. But what I hope you get more than anything else from the book of Revelation is just this, is that Jesus is winning. In other words, he won definitively in the past, he will win definitively in the future, but he is winning definitively right now. Right now, Jesus is drawing every tribe, tongue, and nation to himself. Right now, he is arranging things so that all of the world ultimately will come under his lordship and glorify him. Right now, that is all happening. So he has won, he will win, and he is winning. So that's the purpose. So now, we enter into the second part of the the new stuff, at least for this week, is what's the best approach to study, with which to study the book of Revelation? In other words, whenever you study anything, it's always good to identify your own presuppositions, your own biases, and all that kind of thing. And what, what's the best way? And another way to talk about the approach is that it's like a lens. Everyone reads the Bible through a particular lens, one lens or another, and everyone really reads the book of Revelation through a, one or the other particular lenses. And so basically, in the history of interpretation of Revelation, there have typically been four, four different approaches to the book of Revelation that have been recognized. And we're going to look at those four. You can write them down, but also I'm going to go, I have a slide on each one of these. So the first position that we see is preterist. We're going to talk about what does it mean to be preterist in your, under, your approach to the book of Revelation. The second approach we'll see is called the historicist what does it mean when you say, if, if someone says, what's your approach to the book of Revelation? And you say, I'm a historicist. You'll know after today. What's the next approach? The next approach is futurist. So if you're a futurist, what does that mean? How do you read the book of Revelation? You read the book of Revelation a particular way if you're a futurist that you don't, if you're a preterist, for example. And finally, the biggest, the, one of the main positions is just called the idealist position. Okay, so we have, we have preterist, historicist, futurist, and idealist. And a lot of what differentiates these two, or, or these four positions, is simply this. It's the way they look at what's going to happen at the end of time, or what's going to happen at any time. It's the way they look at symbols. It's the way they look at numbers in the Bible. One of them looks at the symbols in the Bible one way. One of them looks at the, the symbols in Revelation the other way. So let's look first at the preterist position. What's the preterist position say about, how do they approach the book of Revelation? Well, the preterist, before he or she sits down at his desk to open the book of Revelation, basically their presupposition is this, that everything has already happened. In other words, they think that as you read the book of Revelation, that even though it seems like things are in the future, and even though it seems like the, the, a lot of things are to come, the preterist would, says and believes and makes the case, frankly, that everything in the book of Revelation is actually past history. Now, by the way, this is probably the least held view of, of major camps, at least people that call themselves uh, Christians. And basically what they would say is that John uses veiled language to describe current events. 
In, in other words, if you want to if if you want to diss the Roman emperor, it's not good to use his name. So what you do is you call him the beast or something, or you call him the Antichrist. So John is using veiled language to describe current events. But if you could you could see almost right off, I hope you can, that if the very first word of the whole book of Revelation is apocalypse, which means unveiling, that it sort of doesn't seem quite right that John would veil everything if the whole point of the book is to unveil something. And the other thing that's important for you to know is that they would see that most, if not all of the book, is just it's symbolic. Okay? And by the way, I don't mean to, I don't want to denigrate any position. There's a lot of people who have written a lot of stuff about this position to make the case for it. It's just not held by as many people. So if the preterists think things are mostly symbolic, or if the preterists says that what John was doing was John was writing only about events that were current in his day or current events for his time. So if he wrote, say, in the year 95 AD, he's writing only about events that were happening in and around 95 AD, current events. If the preterist says it was the events were only current for John, then what the historicist would say is that basically events are current for us. In other words, the historicist says that everything that you read in the book of Revelation is actually currently happening right now. Everything is. And if you think about it, uh, well, maybe a better way to put it is that this is also sometimes called the newspaper approach. That when you read the newspaper and you see news of war, and you said the book of Revelation talks about war, this must be it right here. We're in the end times right now. In other words, whatever is happening now is what is the book of Revelation is reflecting. Now, the problem with that is the view was, was held, it, it, it worked for the early part of the church, but as years went by, they realized that with every generation, it changes. It's sort of like if you think that you look around and you say, well, see, we're at war in Afghanistan. And the, the book of Revelation says there's going to be wars and rumors of war, so this means this is the interpretation of Revelation. Well, you know, they said the same thing about Vietnam, and they said the same thing about World War II, and they said the same thing about World War I and about the Civil War, and you can go on and on. In other words, every generation has had bad things happen. Every generation has had trials and tribulation. And the other place that it pops up as well is who, the, who you're going to identify as the Antichrist. So it didn't surprise me to see that every president of the United States at one point or another by a historicist interpretation of the book of Revelation has been identified as the Antichrist. Interestingly enough, George Bush and Barack Obama were the top two on that list. But what about the ones who came before them? What about Nixon? What about Eisenhower? All of those have been identified as the Antichrist. So the historicist view reads it and then tries to find direct correlation with what's going on outside of his or her window. And the biggest place where this has popped up historically, and this is important because it is what drove the next view, is with regard to whom the Antichrist is. Right? I told you all the presidents have been identified as Antichrist, but also Hitler has been identified as the Antichrist by some, Stalin. Basically, anyone whom you disagree with, like, I'm sure I have been identified as Antichrist by some people. That's fine. You're just wrong. In other words, when you start saying that this person or that person is the Antichrist, you get in trouble. And during the Reformation, that's exactly what happened. Because during the Reformation, guys like Luther and Calvin and Knox, 
They all had the view, the, this historic, historicist view, and they, who do you think they said was the Antichrist? The Pope. The Pope was the Antichrist, according to them. Even in our own documents of our church, the Westminster Confession of Faith, it has since been edited out, voted constitutionally, but the version that I still read, every now and then it comes across, the Pope is the Antichrist. And so if the Pope is the Antichrist and your church is losing a lot of members because people think that, you tend to want to defend that. And that's the, pl- that's the place from whence the futurist view grew, at least in recent years. That's the next view. What do I mean by that? What does futurism say? Well, if you're a futurist and you're reading the book of Revelation, you say this, is that everything will happen. In other words, you're reading the book of Revelation and the preterist says everything already happened. And the historicist says, no, it's happening right now, just look. And the futurist says, no, it will happen in the future. And this is just sort of a historical tidbit. This guy right here, Franciscus Ribera, during the Reformation, when people were historicists and everyone was saying the Pope is the Antichrist, he wrote a defense to say the Pope can't be the Antichrist. The Pope can't be the Antichrist because everything is in the future. And if everything is in the future, then he can't be the Antichrist. He wrote a, a very persuasive argument, apparently, because now this is one of the main views that people hold, that everything is in the future. I think I told you I heard a pretty famous pastor on the radio the other day. He said, you know, after chapter 4, everything in the book of Revelation is set in the future. And so what do they do? Well, basically, the, the future stresses a very literal view. So you have on one hand, you have the preterist who stresses a completely symbolic view, and you have the futurist which, who stresses almost a completely literal view. You could see how they would be at loggerheads, how they wouldn't necessarily agree when they read the book of Revelation. So the next, the final view is the idealist view. And this one sort of makes me laugh, because if the preterist says everything already happened, the futurist says everything will happen, and the idealist says, I don't know, that, yeah, everything is spiritual or timeless. In other words, the idealist sort of says you can't really know one way or the other, so the best you can do is is glean spiritual principles or spiritual truths from that. And here's a quote for you. Symbols do not relate to historical events, but rather to timeless spiritual truths. And more and more people are taking that view these days, at least scholars are, because in some ways you don't have to fight with anybody. You know, if your buddy's saying everything happened in the past and you're saying everything in the future, well, who's the guy who doesn't have to fight? It's the person who says, yeah, I don't know. How can you know? And since you can't know, let's just glean some spiritual truth here. And so the question is, of course, which the right view or which view are we going to take? So out of all these approaches, there are four of them, preterist, historicist, futurist, and idealist, we're going to take a view here. And it is going to be so clear and specific, I want you to write it down when I say it. Which view are we going to use? And the answer is this. We're going to use none of those views. None of them. We're going to use a view which I'm calling, other people might call, gospel-centered. And I'm going to explain to you exactly what gospel-centered means in a moment as well. You see, the problem with all of those views is that all of them, by the way, have some truth to them. But the problem is they don't really get at the the heart of the issue. 
instead of, of tr- trying to determine what the book is actually about, what is it trying to unveil, what, is it, what moral uh, place is it trying to take us, you end up spending most of your time arguing about whether it happened in the past or whether it happened in the future. Who is this? Who is that? And the gospel-centered view, I hope you're going to see, is going to actually help us make sense out of the book of Revelation. Which, by the way, if you've been a member of this church, at least since I've been here, the gospel-centered approach to Revelation is the exact same approach that I take to 1 Samuel, to Galatians. It's the way that we read the Bible, at least the way I do and the way I present it here. So the question is, how do we understand a gospel-centered approach? And John actually tells us right in the book, we read it this morning, and the key is in Revelation 5. If you, if you look at Revelation 5, which we read this morning, basically what happens is in apocalyptic literature, what is typical, you see basically the letters to the churches have gone out and now the rest of what they need to hear is coming. And in apocalyptic literature, God would hand the scroll to the person who is able to read it. And the person who is able to read it would take it and read it and unveil what the next thing was that people needed to know. And John has now come to that point where the person who is, going, who is able to open the scroll is going to open it and tell us what we need to know about the book of Revelation. So what happens here is key to understanding everything that comes after. And so let me read that to you. It says, Then John saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within, and on the back it was sealed with seven seals. He says, And I saw a strong angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. In other words, John has now, in chapter 4, he's been brought to this place where he is getting this sort of heavenly vision. And guess what? He's not the one who can unravel the scroll. He's not the one that can bring the apocalypse And he realizes as he looks around, there's no one in heaven who is worthy to open this scroll. And if no one is worthy to open the scroll, that means everything that comes after here is worthless. It's worthless because the only person who can make sense of it is the one who is able to open it. And what does John say? What happens next is interesting. He says, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes. So John finally, he starts weeping and an elder tells him, just stop it. You know, I I can't help but read things as if I was still in the army. You know, some elders say, quit crying like a little girl, like something's going on up here. Yeah. He says, stop weeping. And what's interesting, and this is going to, I wish, you know, Burger King principle, I can't say everything. But even now, what we just read has all these interpretive issues because what you see happen with John oftentimes in the book of Revelation is he will hear one thing and then he will see something else. In other words, in chapter 7 in the book of Revelation, in chapter 14, he says, I heard the number 144,000. And I looked and I saw every tribe, tongue, and people without number. So how are you supposed to take those numbers? He heard one of them, but he saw something completely different. 
And the same thing happens here. If you're reading carefully, you notice that he didn't see the lion from the tribe of Judah. One of the elders said, Behold, stop crying. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. He heard with his ears the message that the lion from the tribe of Judah had conquered. But when he turned to look, he saw something different. In other words, he heard something like this. And so he turns and he wants it. he's going to turn around and he's expecting to see the lion from the tribe of Judah, the, the great Davidic king who has conquered all, who has conquered the earth, everything. And he is noble and regal and glorious in all of his majesty. He hears that and he turns around to look and instead of that, what he sees is this or something like it. He sees a lamb who is slain. And that lamb had seven horns and seven eyes. And this is a good time to sort of deviate just a little bit and tell you the meaning of the number seven. Typically speaking, in the Bible, um, number seven, when it's used, at least especially in prophetic uh, writing and apocalyptic stuff, it means completeness. And so what, do you, what happens when you see something that's got seven horns? Well, horns are, are a sign of power in the Bible and in the Old Testament, right? The horn of, of David and that kind of stuff. And so if something has seven horns, that means it is completely and utterly and all-powerful. And, of course, the eyes have to do with being able to see something. And so if something has seven eyes, guess what it could see? Everything. It's completely omniscient. And so John looks around and he sees an odd sight. He, sees, he expects to see the lion from the tribe of Judah, but what he sees instead is a lamb as though it had been slain. But this is no ordinary lamb because this lamb has all power and this lamb has all omniscience. This, rim, this lamb is in charge of everything. And that is the key to the book of Revelation. In, in other words, how does Jesus, the, the lion from the tribe of Judah, win his victory over sin and death? He wins his victory over sin and death by becoming the lamb who was slain. In other words, Jesus wins by losing. Jesus achieves great glory by his humiliation. In other words, what the book of Revelation is about, the opening salvo in the book of Revelation is just this, that everything that Jesus taught you in the Gospels is working itself out right now. When he said the first will be last and the last will be first, that unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it cannot bear much fruit, that when John sees the key to understanding the book of Revelation, what he sees is what Jesus taught the whole time he was on earth, that the Son of Man must suffer and die and after three days rise again from the dead. And that's the key to unlocking the whole thing. And by the way, it's a lot simpler to keep in your mind than which position you have. And we're going to look as we go through. We have to ask a bunch of questions now about what is the gospel. And that's where we're going next. What is the gospel? If the gospel is the key or the gospel is the lens through which we're going to look at the book of Revelation, the first question we have to ask is what is the gospel? And the answer is this. Um, the gospel is the message about Jesus Christ and about his life, death, and resurrection for us and for our salvation. And you'll see, you notice the name Graham Goldsworthy there? We're offering, I think, three, maybe four, three, at least three growth groups that are studying his book on Revelation. It's a shorter book on Revelation. And almost everything that I've got from this point on is borrowing somewhat with a little bit of, of uh, me thrown in, I guess. So the gospel is a message about Jesus Christ, his death, life, death, and resurrection for us and our salvation. Okay? So the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for us. 
That's the gospel. Now that's the key. And so how is it central? Well, it's, just, it's central in just this way, that the person and work of Jesus is central to all God's purposes as they are expressed in both the Old and New Testaments. In other words, if, if the gospel is about the person and work of Jesus for us and for our salvation, this, to, to look at the Bible with a view to say, I'm going to look at it with, with a view to the centrality of the gospel, means that every book of the Bible I'm going to look at and I'm going to see how is the person and work of Jesus expressed here. How is the person and work of Jesus either pointed to or, or, or typified or something, so that in every part of the Bible the person and work of Jesus is put forth. It's central to the whole thing. In other words, when we're going to look at the very end of this thing, that the whole Bible is one big story. And it's one big story that is pointing us to one person, and that is the person of Jesus and his work on our behalf, including, by the way, the book of Revelation. So when we talk about centrality, I just wanted to give you a few ways in which Jesus is central to things or how he gives meaning to things. So even if you go as far back as creation... Like one of the things we're going to see in the book of Revelation in chapter 15, Jesus is called the Lamb who was slain before the creation of the world. So how does Jesus give meaning to creation? If you look at Colossians 1.16, it says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So before God created anything, before anything was done, Jesus was there. And as everything was done, Jesus was there. And the purpose for which everything being there is Jesus himself. And the point to this is just this, is that the gospel was not an afterthought, but a forethought. In other words, if you know the story of the Garden of Eden, God didn't put Adam and Eve in the garden and assume the best. He put them in the Garden of Eden and they sinned. And after that, he didn't say, oh man, now we've got to come up with a plan B. If we understand the gospel correctly and we look at the New Testament and the Old Testament, that God's plan of redemption through the person and work of Jesus was his plan before the foundation of the world. It's not an afterthought. It was his forethought. That becomes important when you get to the very end of the Bible. So Jesus was the meaning of creation. What else? He's also the meaning of the law. If you want to understand the law, and by the law I mean the first five books of the Old Testament, some people include six, you've got to understand it through this thing we call the gospel. And so I'll give you an example of this from John chapter 5. Remember in John chapter 5, Jesus, as he often is, he's arguing with some Pharisees, and they won't listen to him. And so he says in verse 45, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. In other words, Jesus came along saying to, to Jews and Gentiles alike, if you want to have a, a, correct, a right relationship with God, you need to trust in me. That all, everything that God is doing is culminating in me. And they said, you're just an out-of-work carpenter. Why would we believe you? And that's where Jesus is picking up here. He says, well, you know what? Then at the end of the age, I'm not going to be the one who accuses you. Moses will be the one who accuses you. Why? Because Moses wrote about me. What did Moses write about Jesus and the, and the law? Ultimately, we see in the New Testament, we see in Galatians that Jesus was born under the law. 
we see that he obeyed the law. He fulfilled the law. He was the tabernacle among us. He was the lamb who was slain. And finally, we see in the law that he is the, the prophet, the priest, and the king that was promised in the law. All those things culminate in the person and work of Jesus. That's pretty big. So he's the, he's the meaning of creation. He's the meaning of the law. But he's also the meaning of the prophets. That when the prophets were preaching and when the prophets were, were promising and when the prophets were proclaiming judgment, ultimately that, all those things found their culmination in the person and work again of Jesus. The Apostle Paul says that. In 2 Corinthians 1.20, he says, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. So all the promises that, that were made to Israel... Paul is saying to, to the Corinthians here, all the promises that God gave, they find their yes and their amen in Jesus. What kind of promises? Well, all of them, but there are a few of them would be his judgment against sin. The prophets proclaimed and preached against sin. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's judgment against sin for his people. Also, this whole idea of the new covenant, making things new, a restored people of God, the final temple, we see that in John 2, a bunch of other places. And Acts 13.31 is a passage I love. That's where Paul is preaching to a Jewish audience, and he says to them that everything that God promised to us, everything, is fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus. How about this? Yep. Temple? Yep. Land? Yep. If God promised it, it is fulfilled in one person. That's the person of Jesus. So he's the meaning of creation, he's the meaning of the law, he's the meaning of the prophets. Does it get any bit bigger than that? Well, it does, because ultimately Jesus is the meaning of life. At least that's what the New Testament says. Remember passages like Philippians 1.21, Paul says, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. In other words, he didn't say for me to live is to obey Christ. He didn't say for me to live is to, to become a member and for me to, to, is to do all these things. He says for me to live is Christ, that Christ had become so central and that Christ is so central to the life of the Apostle Paul and ultimately for you and me that it's not about, uh, my life is about obeying Jesus. My life is Jesus, Paul would say, that I'm so identified with him. And it, even more than that, he said in Colossians Let me malfunction if you're listening to the audio there. There we go. Colossians 3, 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And again, notice he didn't say when Christ who gives you life, when Christ who informs your life, when Christ who teaches you how to live, somehow that Jesus is so central not only to creation and to the Bible, but, to every, but even to you and to me, that when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will be with him. In glory. So he's the meaning of life. Now, is there anything else? Well, of course, we're talking about the book of Revelation. So Jesus is also the one who gives meaning to the second coming. He is the meaning of the second coming. You see, when you think about the prophets in the Old Testament, the prophets in the Old Testament, in their mind, probably never had in view a first coming and a second coming of Jesus. What they thought is that he would just come. And we know, in retrospect, that God separated those two comings, but biblically speaking, they function as one. And so there's a warning you have to take into account when you talk about the second coming. And what is the warning? The warning is this, basically that the biggest mistake that we make when you read Revelation is failure to understand the relationship 
between Jesus' first coming and that of his second coming. If you separate them completely, you miss the point. And the biggest failure you make is, is by not understanding the relationship between the two. Now the question is, what do I mean by that? Well, that's a pretty simple answer as well. And it, what, it, what I mean is just this, that when Jesus returns, it will not be to do some new or different work. Does that surprise you? I mean, most people, I know some of you have been really excited about Revelation, and I just told you, eh, same old, same old. What you, you know, same thing you hear every week, guess what you're going to hear? The same thing you hear every week. Because when you look at the book of Revelation, Jesus is not coming at his second coming and in the book of Revelation to do something new or different. Let me, t- let me, let me make the point. It's just this. Now, Jesus, you say, well, at the second coming, in book, isn't Jesus coming to judge the quick and the dead? Isn't he coming to judge the earth? Well, yeah, he is, but guess what? He already did that. At the cross, all of the judgment that would be meted out on mankind, that was, it was meted out. Now, were the particular names assigned? No, but, but judgment was accomplished. Not only that, in chapter 3, remember Jesus said, I came to, not to judge, but to save. He didn't even need to judge because he said, you're under judgment already. So judgment, that's, that's, he did that. Will he culminate that? Yeah, but it's, it's not new. How about, what do we have next? How about salvation? You know, is Jesus going to come back and rescue his church from, from every evil thing? Is he, isn't he going to save us at the second coming? We, he, yeah, but he also saved us already at the cross. Salvation is already accomplished. So even though there will be a coming salvation, it's not a new thing. It's a different manifestation of a really old thing, actually. And the list could go on. You could say, well, at least then, you know, when I get to heaven, when Jesus comes back, then I'll dwell in the presence of God, right? Yeah, you will. But when Jesus sent the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, at that point, the the presence of God actually came to dwell in you. It's not a new thing. It might be bigger, it might be better, it might be more flashy, but it's not new. Everything that you see in the book of Revelation, you have already seen and you will already see in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament. In other words, it's interesting to me when you look at the, the, the preterist position, for example, and they say that everything that happened in the book of Revelation is just is really happened in John's day. It's, it's past history. And so all of the things in the book of Revelation are really symbols that are pointing to, say, the Roman emperor or something like that. And if you go to the other end of the continuum, the futurist position, that says all these symbols and things, they all point to something else. And where both of them sort of miss the point, I think, is that every image that you see in the book of Revelation is already in the Bible. It's already there. John uses the Old Testament more than any other New Testament writer combined. Depending on which scholar you read, the lowest number I've read is there are at least 500 references to the Old Testament in John's book, The Revelation. And so you know how, if you've ever had a class with me, I've told you that you can know Jesus without reading the Old Testament. You just can't know him well. The same is true of the book of Revelation. If you want to know where the signs and the symbols and the numbers and all these things are pointing to, they're actually pointing to the Old Testament for all of their imagery. And where does the Old Testament point us? The Old Testament points us to Jesus, that his work is central to everything. And so presence, yeah. So what's different about the second coming? And I'm almost done here. 
What's different about the, sec- the, the difference between the first coming and the second coming is the difference between this girl and that girl. <laughs> if you're listening on audio, that's uh, Prince- Mia Formopoulos from Princess, Princess Diaries. Both of them are the same women if you've not seen the movie. And if you, you have girls under the age of 20, I know you've seen the movie a number of times, trust me. And the difference between these two girls in the same movie is just this. It's a difference of, between status and state. In other words, the movie begins, if you remember, uh, Mia Formopoulos, she's the, the, the daughter of a single mother. They don't have much money. Her hair is really crazy. She wears thick glasses. Her eyebrows look like caterpillars, you know, these kinds of things. She just feels very unattractive and very sort of awkward. And guess what? She sort of is. And yet the queen of Genovia comes and informs her that she is actually princess. You have to say it correctly. Princess of Genovia. So in the twinkling of an eye, her status has changed. But you know what doesn't change in the twinkling of an eye? Her caterpillar eyebrows and her hairdo. She's still Mia, and yet her status has changed. That's what the gospel does to us. That's what the first coming of Jesus did. For those who trust in Jesus, your status has now been changed. And your status is priest, part of a kingdom of priests. Your status is royalty, one of a royal nation. Your status is son and daughter. Now look at the person beside you. They don't, I'm guessing, look particularly regal. And yet that's what their status says about them. And at some point in the Princess Diaries, if you remember, after a long time of training and, and waxing and all these other kinds of things that girls do, she is presented to the world, and at that point her status is transformed in the twinkling of an eye again into her state. That which was true about her on her paperwork is now true about her in her being. That she actually assumes the throne of Genovia. That she actually becomes the princess that she was proclaimed to be. And the difference between the first coming and the second coming and what happens at those two is not new and different. It's the difference between status. Your status before God has changed and at the second coming your state will change before God. And so what's the point to all this? What's the bottom line? I've taken a long time to talk about this. The bottom line is we're studying the book of Revelation, and this is the last thing I have, is just this, that the book of Revelation is no more nor any less than the culminating chapter of God's redemptive purpose for the entire cosmos. In other words, the the Bible is one big story that starts in Genesis And if you're familiar with Genesis, remember how it begins that Adam and Eve were put in the garden and told not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And the tree of life is there? Well, the tree of life shows up again in the book of Revelation because at the end, because of the personal work of Jesus, we are given access to that. Remember in the book of Genesis, there's a lot of going on between the woman and the serpent. And when you read the book of Revelation, what do you see? There's a lot going on between the woman and the serpent. And over and over and over. So all the things that God has started to tell the story about in Genesis and on throughout the whole Bible, the culminating chapter is Revelation. And so if you want to know the end of the story, you've got to know the rest of the story that came before it. And so as we're going along, we'll probably talk about that. So you think about that. Let me pray for us. Father, I do pray that as we work through the gospel, as it is seen in Revelation, that you would make it clear to us 
that we wouldn't get bogged down in uh, this view or that view, but that we would get uh, energized and excited about the person and work of Jesus as he has shown to us here in ways that he's not shown, or maybe that he is shown, but we haven't seen. I pray that you would do that. In Christ's name, we pray these things. Amen and amen. At this point in the service, if you're able to stand, I would ask you to stand with me and we'll sing the doxology as we prepare to receive God's tithes and offerings. <laughs> 